basically a historical record of the life of Jesus through, the, uh, through Luke itself, and then gives us a historical um, picture of the early church after Jesus had been crucified, he'd been buried, he'd rose again, and then he spent all that time teaching his disciples about 40 days through the power of the Holy Spirit, or through the Holy Spirit, it said, I'd love to know what that actually means, you know. But he taught them through the Holy Spirit about the kingdom of God. So then, just before he ascends, he commissions his disciples to be witnesses for him. He commands them to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Father. You might remember, if you know your Bible at all, that in John's Gospel, Jesus, it's probably one of the longest individual discourses that is recorded of his next to the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about the Holy Spirit and how when he ascends to be with the Father, he is going to ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit to them. He wasn't going to leave them orphans. And the Holy Spirit was going to lead them into truth. And then at this point, we got to the place where the Holy Spirit was outpoured and or he told them that, that in a few days from now, you will receive power and that power will come via the Holy Spirit, and the Holy and that power will enable you to be my witnesses throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We looked at how the disciples actually responded, that they were obedient. They went to Jerusalem. They waited for um, his promise as it as he said it would happen Jesus said that go and wait and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and it did happen and we looked at what happens when we are obedient Um, they received the Holy Spirit there were 3,000 people added to the church on that first day where Peter all of a sudden gets a boldness to stand up in front of this large crowd of people and share the good news message about who Jesus was, that he was the fulfillment of what had been promised hundreds of years before, not just last week, not 10 days earlier when Jesus had said something, but Jesus was the promise of hundreds of years of God's dealing with um, his people starting right back at the beginning with Adam and Eve and going through and you've got Abraham and you've got Jacob and you've got a whole host of people coming on through and then the prophets, the minor prophets, the major prophets. Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one who was promised to come, the one who was going to restore and bring restoration to the world which had been destroyed by sin. Now, whatever we want to think these days, we don't really like that three-letter word, sin, which has I in the middle, me, me being selfish. But it, we don't like it. We'll call it anything else but that. We will say mistakes, failures. We will call it absolutely anything else, but we do not like to call it what it, God calls it, sin. The thing that separates us from God If I was to paint a white wall behind me and it was fully just white and I was to put a black spot in the middle of that wall and then I was to ask you what you could see, very few of us would say we saw a white wall. 
the majority of us would actually focus on the black spot right in the middle of the wall. And sometimes people think, you know, if I am a sinner, then it's, I, I haven't been a bad person, you know. It's only a small dot of sin, you know. I've been a bit selfish every now and again, but isn't everybody, you know, um, I haven't really done anything wrong, you know. I've, I don't think I've done any of the big things, you know, that most of us hate, you know. I've not killed somebody, I've not abused somebody, you know, we've got this gradient of sin in our lives that we can, or gradient of sin that we sort of, there is stuff that we feel is a little bit more acceptable than other stuff. The truth is, however, it doesn't matter. Sin is sin, and it is that which separates us from God. So, the Holy Spirit's outpoured, and this move that God, that Jesus had spoken about, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth begin, because Jerusalem's filled with people from all over the world, and they all hear these Galileans, these uneducated men and women, sharing the good news, the message of the good news about Jesus in their own language, speaking out the glories of God. And then Peter, under what we would call the anointing of the Holy Spirit, stands and he shares that full message. And 3,000 men are added to the church, which means there was a lot more. Because most of us know that churches are full of more women than men. So the reality is... It might have been five, 3,000 men, but there were probably a lot more women and children there than that. So, we then moved on from there and we talked just about this whole fact about the community of the king, how then what was formed was the community of the king. And that was formed and there were four things that really they devoted themselves to, the apostles' teaching or doctrine. So the word of God... Now, when they talked about the Word of God, they were talking about the Old Testament. Actually, when we talk about the Word of God, it is this book. However, at the same time, it is about Him who is the living Word. And you know, we, the Bible says in one place, we can search Scriptures all day long, but we fail to come to Him who is the living Word for life. And so we can study the book just as a pure study piece but the reality is we need to come to Jesus asking him to and the Holy Spirit to make the words of this book come alive in our lives so the apostles teaching fellowship you know sharing life doing life together not just superficial but doing life together being concerned about one another Um, breaking of bread well for me that's what we've done this morning we've broke bread we've remembered the death of Christ it becomes the declaration of the gospel week by week in our midst but also it means eating from house to house it's very clear just as you go through and and go beyond those four statements that they're breaking bread they're eating meals together they're sharing fellowship over a table together and being thankful for what is happening and so There's breaking of bread. And then, of course, as you'll see through the Acts of the Apostles again and again and again, they were either on their way to prayer, which is where we will start today. They were on their way to prayer, or they had prayed already, or they were in a prayer meeting. The place was shaken, and they had boldness and all the rest of it. 
So where we're going to start today, I've called this living in the power of the Spirit. Living in the power of the Spirit. Last week we were called the community of the King, but this week it's about living in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit has been outpoured, things have been happening, um, they have had this amazing ingathering of people and we get to this moment and this place and it's, it doesn't tell us actually whether it's a, a few days after this or whether it is a week or a month or six months, it doesn't tell us. But sometime after this initial inauguration of the, of the body of Christ, the church, the people of God, uh, to be God's vehicle to share his good news, we read this in Acts 3.1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, so that's three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the, gate, the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately, immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up, he stood and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. <clears throat> Okay, <clears throat> I'm going to leave it there, because if I read the rest, it's just taking up too much time for this morning. Walking and leaping and praising God, living in the power of the Spirit. Here are two guys who not long ago were hiding away with the other disciples, locked behind closed doors because Jesus had been crucified. And he had been raised from the dead, but they had no idea whatsoever what was going on. And it hadn't quite connected. I don't think that they had connected all the dots. I think they had been given all the pieces of the jigsaw, but they hadn't actually managed to put them together. And I know what that's like when I'm trying to do jigsaws, because I'm useless at jigsaws. I always get that one piece I can't put in, and it ruins the whole picture, because the only bit that I'm interested in is the bit that I lost you know, where is it now? So they hadn't quite connected all the dots, I'm not, I don't think, you know. They were being obedient to Jesus. They knew he'd been raised from the dead, but they hadn't quite put all the dots together. And here they are hiding away. And then just this short period later, seven, maybe 12, 18 weeks later, they're on their way to the temple at the ninth hour for prayer. And they come across this guy sat at the gate, beautiful. Now, what, 
what a, a strange place to be sat. I mean, it's a perfect place if you're begging for alms, all right? But a strange name of somewhere to sit when you're suffering with a disability and you're sitting at something called the beautiful gate. Because this beautiful gate actually separated this man from entering into the temple itself where there would be worship of the almighty God and where the presence of God was believed to reside. And so something called the beautiful gate by which so many people pass through on their way in to worship, he was sat on the outside. And the best he could do was peer in through the gate and have a look at what was going on inside. And I think that is an absolute paramount issue in this portion of Scripture in the Old Testament, and I don't understand why in, in, in entirety, all right? But you weren't allowed to be a priest if you had any deformity at all. You couldn't be a priest unto God. Now, we're all a kingdom of priests. Those of us who have given our lives to Christ this morning, every one of us are a kingdom of priests today. It says that in 1 Peter 2. We're a kingdom of priests. We're a royal priesthood, a kingdom, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And we're not excluded from his presence. But in that religious environment, in society, People who were disabled were frowned upon. We know that. We know that lepers were separated outside of the city and hidden away. A, because it was very contagious. But B, because people didn't want to be confronted with that disability, that sickness that was ravaging their bodies. They had to walk through the streets ringing a bell, shouting unclean, unclean to give people the opportunity to pass by on the other side of the road. And yet in the midst of that moment, you might remember one of the accounts where Jesus comes along and he's, it says some of the most powerful words of what Jesus was doing at that time. These lepers were there and it says he reached out and he touched them. He touched them. Those who were unclean, those who would have made Jesus unclean in terms of religion, he touched them. And they said, if you are willing, make us clean. And he said, I am willing. Be clean. And off they went to the temple to show themselves to the priests. Out of ten who went, one only returned to worship. The word, the living word of God. The other nine took the benefit and left. You know, people can do that. You can be here this morning for whatever reason you have come. If God moves in power, you can take the benefits and then walk away and really give God a deaf ear for the rest of the next week until next Sunday 
If you want to, that's if you come again next Sunday, of course, or wherever you go next Sunday, right? The reality is we can take the benefits by getting caught up with everybody else. But we need to learn that when God touches our lives, when God takes away that which excludes us, it should result in worship. Unfiltered worship. We're not worried about what the person next to us might think about us or the people around us might think about us or the person at the back or one of the elders or the pastor. It doesn't matter what they think. At the end of the day, when God touches our lives and he transforms us and he begins to change us, we should respond with unfiltered worship. And the majority of our worship is, I present myself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, which is my act of worship, my reasonable act of worship. In other words, I am going to submit to you, Lord. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to walk after you because I am so thankful for what you've done for me. So I wrote this little phrase down, what... Religion and society excludes, God includes. And there is no one, no one, no matter what you've done, that is excluded from God. No one. Even the most heinous crime or sin that you think is in the world today, no one is excluded from God. God wants all to be included. All. But there's a little but. We have to accept the invitation of Christ to follow him and be fully submitted to him, walking after him and his ways. So here is Peter and John He's a man who is, knows what exclusion means. He knows what desperation means. He knows what shame means. The posture normally of begging is this. Head down, hands up. You can see it in any street in the cities in which you walk around our own nation. Very few beggars will make eye contact with you, but they will ask if you've got any change. And I want to confess something to you, because I struggle sometimes with that. If I think in my life the number of people begging on the street that I've just walked on by, I can't count them on two hands and two lots of feet with toes. And I'm not proud of that. The reality is, sometimes in our lives, we, we're so frightened of being duped that we walk on by. We don't. What happens if I give them money and something, they go and spend it on something that they shouldn't do, you know? Maybe even if we don't give money, taking a moment to say, hello might be even something as powerful as putting money in a hat. So here are Peter and John. Here's this man. He knows what it is to beg. 
Peter and John come along and they say, look at us. And I can imagine this man thinking, I'm going to get a big gift here. It was a lot bigger than he thought, you know. But his initial thought would have been, they're going to give me money. They're going to give me something because that's why I'm here. Everybody knew why he was there. And when he raises his face to them, I get this in my mind. This isn't actually said here. It does say he fixed his gaze upon them. And they fixed their gaze upon him. How I take that is they were eyeball to eyeball. Looking straight into the eyes of one another. And then Peter says those words. Silver and gold have I none. And I can imagine that man's heart sinking. But Peter doesn't stop there. He says, but what I have I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, this for me is where you've got real bottle. Peter was known for his impetuosity, speaking before he thought. And that had got him into lots of trouble in the past. You know, get behind me, Satan. You know, I'm not going to deny you, Lord. No, it will never be me. I'll be there right at the end. You'll deny me three times, Peter. And this same Peter, and he did. Before the cock crows, the cock crowed. And it says that Peter wept because he had denied Jesus three times. This impetuous man was not, I don't believe, impetuous on this occasion, but what boldness that here is a man in front of him who it's evident that he cannot stand. And he reaches down and takes his right hand and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, I've done this. I can pray for people. Oh, Lord, heal this person. Do this to them, Lord. You know, that's all right. But would I... Would I do that? You're putting, you're putting your money where your mouth is at that moment, aren't you? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he reaches down, takes his hand, and he pulls him to his feet. Now, what would have happened if he had let go and the man had crumpled in a heap on the floor? But he didn't. It says immediately his ankles and his feet became strong. And he leapt up. He didn't just get up. He leapt up to his feet and he started praising God. And then, of course, no longer was he outside sitting at the gate, beautiful. But he could now pass through the beautiful gate. It really was a beautiful gate for him on this day. He walks into the middle of the temple and he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. And there's a testimony going down. Everybody knew this man. He'd sat there for the majority of his life. And they had passed him by day after day after day after day. And all of a sudden, here he is walking and leaping and praising God. Why does this all happen? Is it because Peter wants to get a rep for himself as a healer? You know, hey, come to my meetings. You know, I lay hands on the sick and they get well. You know, no, I don't think so. Was it that he was trying to 
encourage John to be a bit more bold? No, I don't think it was that either. He just knew that what the man needed, or what the man asked for, he didn't have, but what the man actually needed, his Jesus could provide. That is a beautiful picture for me of what it means when we come to Jesus. We think we know what we need or what we want. We do know what we want. But Jesus knows what we need. He knows what we need. We do. So many of us will settle for our wants. But if only Jesus would meet our need. All of a sudden our wants would pale into insignificance and not be of any real issue to us. So I lost my way just in the introduction. So, so that's not the introduction, by the way. Okay, so don't panic. Living in the power of the Spirit, here are these guys. Why is this healing important? Well, it's important because of what I've said. It shows that that which religion and society excludes, God includes. It shows that these men were not after their own reputation because they did everything in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. They were glorifying him. The man himself did not glorify Peter and John. He was praising God, it says. So when our lives are touched, we will praise God. But this is why miracles happen. It's what follows is why miracles happen. They are signposts to the kingdom of God. They are signposts saying Jesus is real. God is real. God wants you in his life. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to know the real God, the real Father in heaven, not the one that you think is out there aloof, and if he is there, he's totally uninterested in my life. He is interested in every, every part of our life. All of us. And so he, he uses this opportunity. He meets the moment head on, and... He starts to give glory to God, his master, and his king, Jesus. So in verse 13, he uses a formal introduction about Jesus. He talks about um, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. And so he starts and he, he links Jesus with no shadow of a doubt back to his Father in heaven. And he is going to be telling them that, bottom line, this man is praising God because of the 
God, the one and only God who gave Jesus, who you rejected, who you didn't want, who you decided you wanted a murderer in his place when all this man had done throughout his whole life was good. He had healed the sick. He had raised the dead. He had fed thousands of people with the meagerest of resources. He had done all those things. I believe that when Jesus looked into your eyes, your heart would melt because his eyes were just pure love looking at you. No matter where you were coming from, whether you were a tax collector, whether you were a a murderer, whether you were an abuser, that when Jesus looked at you in your eyes, the love that was in those eyes was the love, the pure love of God just beckoning you to respond. And yet you chose someone else other than him. And do you know what, folk? That's what we do. So often we choose something else other than him. When all he wants is us to choose him. And so Peter goes on and he goes through this sermon. I won't do every line, but he states how God had raised Jesus from the dead, that they are witnesses of his resurrection. How can we do that in this modern world? We weren't there when Jesus was raised from the dead. So how do we, how can we confidently say that Jesus is alive? We can say we know that Jesus is alive on this basis, on the basis of how he is interacting in our lives with us. Am I a different person today to the person I used to be? Am I changing? Am I aware that God is changing me? I've got to tell you, I know that God is changing me. I'm 62, going, no, I'm not going I have have I passed over the six month period I have so I'm now on the downward slope to 63 but the reality is that God is changing me he's been changing me since the first day that I decided to accept his invitation and follow him he's been changing me he's been knocking the rough edges off me sometimes it's been painful other times it's been easy Sometimes I've wrestled and argued with him about things only to submit to him eventually. I could have made my life so much easier if I didn't have to have the last word so often. That's what I say about my wife. Have you noticed that about your partner? Nothing against you ladies, but you know, my wife always seems to have to have the last word, you know. And I know she's having it even when she doesn't voice it. It's in here going... So, then Peter says, listen, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus. At best, he doesn't use this phrase, at best they were just a pure conduit of the power of God. It was nothing to do with them. Don't look to us, it's Jesus. And he points them to Jesus. It's through faith that is in the name of Jesus that this man has been made whole. That it actually says here that he has been given perfect health, wellness, wholeness. That's why Jesus comes. That's why Jesus is interested in your life. He wants to make us whole. 
All of us, we might be carrying different ailments, different diseases in our physical bodies, but I want to tell you there's one thing that makes us all the same. It's the fact of our internal life. So many of us have experienced hurts and pains given to us by others, by words said, by condemnation that has been spoken over us, by you're a failure, you're never going to amount to anything in life. You're, you're just useless. You never do anything right. You always choose the wrong friends. Always choose the wrong friends. You can never choose the right friends. Why don't you choose the right friends, for goodness sake? If you didn't hang out with those people, you'd be all right. But you hang out with those people. Why do you do that? You know, when my, in my life I stole on a number of occasions from my parents... And my dad would sit me down and he would ask me this question, why did you do it? And you know, I would say, I don't know. And that was the truth. I don't know why I did it. I genuinely didn't. I don't know. I don't know. But I want to tell you, God loves us. He loves us. And when he meets us, I believe he exercises and he releases love towards us. Acceptance towards us. Forgiveness is available to us. And therefore, I don't know about you, but if I really met someone like that, isn't he worth following? Isn't he worth something And not only the fact that those things are available to us, but that he was willing to die in my place. Isn't he worth making the king of your life? I would say he is. But so many of us live by the condemnation and the things that have been spoken over us. And it screws up our life. We are ashamed. We're guilt-ridden. We don't feel we're able to move forward. But God can take away that which excludes us and invites us and includes us. That's the offer that's here this morning to all of us. It's on offer to us every day of our lives. Whether we've walked with Jesus for 50 years or we've never quite yet started, I want to tell you, every day you have lived to this point, the invitation of Jesus has been there for you. It's been there for you. God, I believe, genuinely wants to touch people's lives. He wants to heal them of their past hurts. He wants to take away the pain and the guilt of all those things that have been spoken over our lives. He wants to take away the shame and the guilt of the things we've actually done in our lives that we don't want any other person in this room to know about. And there are things in our lives, all of us, we would probably prefer that nobody else here knows. But God knows. Jesus knows. And do you know what breaks the power of guilt and shame? Is when someone else knows about your area that you keep hidden. And they still love you. They still accept you. And they will still forgive you.
And that is my Jesus. That is my Jesus. That is the Jesus who came from the Heavenly Father to die the cruelest of deaths. Be buried, but to rise again. That moment, he broke the power of the devil, the enemy. Death is the enemy's ultimate victory. So he thought. But Jesus has broken the power of death. This sermon goes on and it ends basically... It ends basically in a place where we heard Sarah read this morning from the book of Revelation about how the Lamb took the scroll and opened the seal. Right? No one else could do it. He did it. Jesus is the only one who can restore our relationship with God. The only one. He is the only one who can deal with your shame and your guilt. He is the only one who can break the power of those words spoken over your life. And his offer is here for that this morning. It ends up, because that's where I was trying to end up, It ends up this sermon in the place that there is a time when Christ is coming again. He says this, that your sins, your wrongdoings can be blotted out. That's what he says. Come, repent, turn back, turn back to God. Change your mind, change your thinking, change your actions, change your direction. Make a different choice to the one that you've been making in order that your sins will be, your guilt will be blotted out, erased, wiped off, obliterated. You've seen a whiteboard with those pens that you write on or a blackboard and you wipe across it and it's gone. Or if you were like me growing up, Etch-A-Sketch. Do you remember them things where you twiddled the knobs and it did a drawing, never could work it out? But when you picked it up and you shook it, guess what? You had a clean slate and you started all over again. Times of refreshing. So you'd be blotted out. All those things that break you will be blotted out, erased, wiped off, obliterated. That you might come into a place of freshness and refreshing, that your life will have an abundant feel about it, you will feel free, you will feel light, and that that might come from the presence of the Lord, but with the ultimate aim that he will come again. He will. May come from the presence of the Lord, and then it says, and that he may send the Christ until the time when all things are to be restored bottom line there is a day coming we don't know when some people would say well you've been waiting 2022 years and it still hasn't arrived does it but it's coming 
And one day, whether it's in my lifetime or my kids' lifetime or their kids' lifetime, one day, the Bible says he will return and he will come like a thief in the night. He will come like a thief in the night and he will gather those to himself who have submitted their lives to him. If I'm alive, I will see him come in. I will see him come in.